Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have two guests today, uh, Alexander Hawk, the CEO of Retinad VR, and uh, Miriam Sabor. She's a strategic consultant that's working with Alexander. Uh, looks like they've just been uh, acquired by a company called Lumiere. So we're going to get into uh, what Retinad does. We're going to talk a little bit about Lumiere and uh, all their current efforts. So thanks for coming on the podcast, both of you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Richard, for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let's start simple. So uh, what's the premise of Retinad VR? Right. So Retinad was actually a pretty simple premise. It it was born out of a requirement to measure and understand uh, behavior and, and performance in VR. And, and what I mean by that is, um, taking a step back, uh, the VR market as it is today, or the VR industry as it is today, you know, was born um, about four years ago, just after the acquisition of of Oculus by Facebook is really a turning point and milestone for the VR industry. And with that, there was a huge uptick of, of indie developers building amazing gaming and non-gaming VR experiences uh, for the market and, and, and for the, for the Oculus Rift, which was the, the company that uh, Facebook acquired. And what we were seeing is that while developers were building these, these pretty cool, you know, novel experiences, a lot of them were, were pretty janky, had a lot of issues. Um, and no, nobody really had a way to measure the user, you know, interaction, sentiment, um, and ultimately the behavior. So uh, Retinad was born out of this this major problem in the industry of measuring and understanding that behavior. Um, and yeah, we do that through a lot of ways, and I'm happy to dive into. But you know, also happy for Miriam to take the floor um, and, and, and intro what how she got involved as well. It could be cool for her to talk. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Miriam, yeah, definitely. if you would, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess uh, thinking back to how it kind of all started, um, at the time, uh, the CEO of Retinad was actually um, someone different. It was uh, Daniel Poirier. And, um, you know, they were just kind of preparing to do an initial pitch for uh, one of their uh, investors. And um, that's kind of how I got involved in helping them kind of uh, you know, create that pitch and um, refine it. And it actually led to a really interesting offer. Um, you know, they had like a million dollar off, uh, a million dollar offer 24 hours to respond to and they actually decided to reject it. Um, so, you know, back then in, uh, you know, I think that was 2015, it was um, a really wild time for, for the VR market. Um, and, um, what ended up happening was, uh, they just, they actually, um, Alex, I guess you can kind of speak to this, but Alex kind of came in, uh, shortly after and they, they did end up raising a great round. Um, and ever since I've kind of been helping them just, um, with clients, you know, with business models, I, I helped with the more recent acquisition as well. Um, and, uh, ever since Alex kind of joined, uh, we've, they, I guess they kind of pivoted from what they were in the beginning. Yeah, a yeah, million dollar offer with 24 hours to respond. It sounds like something Mark Cuban would do on Shark Tank, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. it's crazy time of startups, right? Especially the gold rush yeah. on Facebook. It was, it was like Bitcoin of 2016. Huh. Okay. So, um, <laughs> you know, let's, back to the Retinad VR. So you wanted to, you're right, you know, I've never heard anyone talk about 
user behavior. I've just heard it as a one-way thing. You know, we're company X and we provide a VR experience that does this, that, and the other. But I've never heard about, all right, the user experience and the feedback and what kind of parameters or things are you looking for? So someone has one of your, you know, a VR experience. What are the, again, the parameters and things that you're looking for? What does feedback mean? What kind of user right. behavior? What things? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, I mean, primarily what we're tracking and, and the, the one novel metric to virtual reality as opposed to any other medium, let's say like, you know, web or mobile, uh, you know, analytics or, or behavior tracking is the fact that with, with, with this is, user that actually has a VR headset on, um, we're able to track where a user looks. And I don't mean quite eye tracking, although that does exist within a VR headset today. What I mean is, is actually a little bit more bare bones, which is just head, positional head tracking. So um, these sensors that are inside of the, the VR headset that track your, your movement for, you know, video game design purpose or just, you know, VR locomotion purpose actually serve as a tool um, to understand, you know, how the user is gazing as well. So that, that type of data that we're able to collect is novel for VR. It may, may not be novel to the scientific community, but you can imagine um, this is novel in the sense of if there's, let's say, 10 million VR headsets that are distributed across the world, uh, it's, that's pretty phenomenal data uptake that you can, you can have. So uh, again, primarily where users are looking, how they move around their hands in VR if they, if they have like a a tethered headset right now, like an Oculus Rift or an HTC Vive, some of the more powerful VR headsets, not like a Google Cardboard or a Samsung Gear VR, which need to be distinguished from those first two, which are a little bit lower fidelity VR experiences um, that don't, you can't really move your body around in VR. There's no locomotion um, and it's reserved to uh, where people are looking. But we can also measure those classic metrics as well, right? So uh, that Google Analytics or a mixed panel would provide. So what kind of device are, are people using? Uh, what kind of Play Store are people purchasing apps in? Where, you know, how many streams and downloads do they have coming from different videos or apps and games? Um, and then really trying to understand the grammar and language of VR as well, which is something Miriam helped us decipher as well. Because at first we were just collecting all this kind of noise, I would say. Uh, so all this novel data was really cool. But when you actually have to kind of, you know, look at it under a microscope and make sense of it, uh, it's kind of like this alphabet soup. Uh, and, you know, it's just extremely messy and extremely noisy. Um, and Mary, maybe you can speak to how you helped us as well decipher, you know, some of the first learnings and key insights in the grammar of VR, I think would be really cool. <clears throat> sure. Are you, are you kind of speaking to Jeremy Balance and stuff? So I, I can kind of talk to that. Yeah, absolutely. So, or how uh, there was like stuff that we did with Yahoo as well. Jeremy Balance, I think is a great, is great for you to speak about as well. Um, yeah, sure, definitely. So, I mean, kind of where, where my background kind of helped them as well is um, I, I've done a lot of research uh, back when in law school, kind of just about um, immersive tech, uh, kind of how it affects behavior, um, you know, thinking to empathy, thinking also to kind of the more negative use cases in terms of, you know, how that can be used for, um, you know, data collection and user privacy as well. Um, so, you know, there, there's actually a concept called like, called like a kinematic fingerprint. Um, that's essentially in, in virtual reality, the way you move, so your hand movements, your head movements, eye tracking, all of these things can actually give this kinematic type of fingerprint. Um, so, you know, working with Retina, you know, obviously one of the utmost things they, one of the things they really always wanted to focus on was making sure that, um, you know, they, they were kind of being 
very careful on how this data was being used because obviously there's no real you know regulations around it right now. There's tons of gray areas, kind of how all this biometric data is being used as well. Um, I mean, even if you look at the Oculus headset, um, you know, big company, they are still collecting all of this data and they warn you, but they they don't choose not to. Um, and it's not that transparent exactly how it's being used. So keeping all of kind of the dark side in mind is really important to kind of really understand how behavior is affected in VR. So um, the reason why we kind of just mentioned Jeremy Balance in between the two of us is because he is a, a professor at Stanford University out at the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And he runs all of these studies um, about how VR affects behavior. Um, and, you know, it's great because a lot of the studies actually focus on the good ways that it affects behavior. So to give you like a really, you know, silly example, um, if I was to see myself in virtual reality as a female avatar, um, and let's say my avatar were to be slapped, um, my skin uh, heat conductance and my heart rate would go up and react the same way as if I were slapped in real life. Um, so this already is novel to see kind of how, you know, the behavior translates into real life. Um, but what's, what's even more novel is that if I were to see that same avatar and it was to be a male avatar, someone different from me, I would still have that same effect if they were to be slapped in VR. So it's really interesting because it has all of these novel um, kind of use cases for kind of embodying different perspectives. So if you think about, you know, the way that translates across different ages, different races, different species, you know, if you're an animal in VR, a plant in VR, um, it's, it's really interesting. So kind of going back to what that looks like in, in terms of metrics, um, you know, I think uh, Alex actually, he he kind of really helped lead with their uh, data scientists, um, really kind of novel metrics in terms of how we're able to measure all of these different things. Um, and uh, maybe Alex, you want to speak to the activity score in specific and kind of how you came up with that and what that translates to. Um, I think that's something that's really different yeah. that RedPad uh, does compared to other analytics companies. Sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, quick question before you uh, get into that. Yeah, sure. You know, I always, I'd always like to know, so, yeah, one thing someone told me about VR, which I didn't realize it was obvious, is that everything can be recorded about experience. Everything that's seen, everything, every movement, every everything. So you're right, mm -hmm. privacy could be a big issue. What definitely? You know, yeah. so you talk to people that study behavior, and you're collecting metrics yourself. So what's the interesting stuff you found that surprised you? You know, that you can talk about before we delve right. into like you know the activity score. What What did you yeah. see, and you were like, huh, interesting? Yeah, absolutely. So. We actually worked with with Jessica Brillhart, who was the head uh, creative at um, Google uh, VR, uh, the Jump VR team, which is one of the pioneers for 360 VR video uh, back in 2016 and, and still is today. And what we found, so what we were commissioned to do is just understand, you know, how are how are people actually reacting to this narrative piece? So she filmed. Um, a couple pieces that she sent her way. And one of the most memorable ones that she had posted online, actually as a blog, was a video of the Montreal Canadiens playing playing ice hockey and a tour of the stadium. So there was about a five-minute piece of this beautiful 360 uh, VR video. And there was this one moment in particular that Jessica and the VR team were really, really interested in and understanding if, if people were actually reacting to. Her whole hypothesis and theory was that um, after the Canadians had scored a goal, the crowd is reacting and jumping and, and cheering, and you can see all around you in 360 and see the fan reactions as if you're right there in the stadium with them, is there's this old uh, gentleman who 
kind of looks over to the 360 camera, which is your perspective in VR, and kind of nods at you. So I guess she, he was nodding at, at Jessica or whoever was, was making the film at that time at, at the camera uh, as kind of an acknowledgement and, you know, kind of giving like a fist pump, like a oh. cheers. And her hypothesis was that this was this act of breaking the fourth wall that you can experience in a film was much deeper and much of a deeper sensation, much deeply uh, deeper felt in VR. And her first, she wanted to, she actually, so we actually took that, gave, gave this video to you know, a few dozen people and, and collect, I think it was about 35 to 40 data points at that time um, when we had done this study. And we looked for, okay, well, where are people actually looking? As I said, is one of the biggest metrics that we're checking. And, and we, we looked at specifically that gentleman. So we had a tool that was able to kind of segment a part of a video and filter out um, one, one specific frame or image or a couple of specific keyframes and images. And we looked for how often is that, let's say, that target or that image actually hit. And her hypothesis was actually absolutely correct. That act of um, that one person looking at you and engaging with you, despite the fact that you could look at all these other fans, um, seemed to draw in everyone's attention um, and really get everybody kind of, you know, very excited uh, throughout throughout that experience or just kind of feel closer to the game. And the way we were measuring that is one, of course, you know, were they actually engaging with this gentleman and, and kind of engagement was who looks at this gentleman for three seconds or more, I believe the metric was. And it was about an 85% uh, success rate or, you know, engagement rate that we had achieved. So hmm. that, that kind of, and, you know, those kind of early metrics of one, you know, where are people looking, but more specifically, are they, are, are they as a director, are they actually looking at the stuff that I intend them to look? Or if I have no real intention, I'm just trying to figure out the medium, how are people actually kind of going down this narrative path? And what that gave birth to is, okay, well, if this alphabet soup that I mentioned before can kind of be deconstructed and now, you know, we get this, an, an actual alphabet or some sort of, you know, some sort of sensation of an alphabet, we can actually get to language. And the language of VR through data started to be developed specifically for, for narrative purposes. So we started having creators jump onto the platform and say, okay, well, I want to test this thing. Do people actually look at like the pink elephant over here? Or do they look at the plane that's on top of them? And, um, you know, trying to figure out what, what are the actual uh, behaviors that people are having. And as a final one, and um, I, again, I can let Miriam talk or I can, I can let you ask another question, but um, the final thing that I thought was really cool, we had conducted another study um, with Yahoo and more on the brand and creative side. And what we were trying to understand is um, the saliency model or like this, again, that kind of language or grammar of VR. And we were looking, there's no real, I guess, question in terms of, uh, you know, these are the things that we care that people are looking at necessarily, other than let's say a branded logo, but it was more, how are people behaving? Like you, you tell us, what are, what are people doing when they're inside of a headset? And what, what differentiates a good experience from a bad one? And what we found was in VR, despite the hypothesis, let's say from a creator just saying, well, you know, if I have a 360 scene in VR, it should be engaging enough and fun enough for a user to kind of move all around and really stick throughout the narrative. And what we found was that that hypothesis is actually very false. What you need to do, or not entirely, or very nuanced, and what you need to do to keep somebody immersed in a VR experience is actually hit them with something that's not visual whatsoever. And that sounds kind of paradoxical to something like virtual reality, which relies extremely heavily on, on uh, the, percep the perceptual sense. 
right now. What we found is that it's actually audio. If you're able to get somebody within the first five seconds, hit them with an audio cue within five seconds and get them to use that to guide them, uh, to get them to move around um, in, within the first five seconds, the rate of completion in a VR video or a 360 experience goes up uh, about 80%. Um, and that's a phenomenal data point. That It's an early data point we need to study a little bit more, but it's a pretty cool piece of information to understand. Oh, and it sounds, I guess it sounds obvious in retrospect, but a lot of VR video, a lot of the biggest complaint, like I was saying, is that a lot of it just kind of is not sticking with users. So just having that as a creative, that little piece of information is helping get people to move around. Um, because a lot of VR is video, unfortunately... Uh... Yeah. What kind of a sound? Is it a chime that announces you into the experience or is it a, you know, a welcome message or, you know, what what could be any of those things? It's actually, so it's it's that stuff, but again, nuanced with like positional audio. So you have to have it kind of like stereo wide. So it assumes that the user is watching this with some sort of a little bit higher end or like integrated audio uh, headphones that are there or some sort of headphones that they're wearing as well. And it's positional audio and Dolby and Facebook all have their own three, uh, 3D tools or 360 audio tools. And it's something that kind of comes from the back of your head and guides you to look around um, and then opens up with a strong visual. So it's not just, it's something that I would call as like different than what we're used to in, in the 2D you know, TV world, if that makes any sense. Right. Just explain. Yeah. Well, I'm picturing like, you know, you put on a, a you know, a VR headset and, you know, a voice says welcome and it, Maybe it highlights visually um, things you're supposed to look at and orients you for the first few seconds. Yeah. The guess on what would help in experience instead of just you, you put it on and then you're supposed to start looking around and figure out what's going on and what you're supposed to yes. look at. That, that's actually entirely correct. And Google uh, came out with an experience recently in the last six months that does that where they start off with like a darker screen and then there's like a stage spotlight that pops up, highlights the main character and then there's a, you know, illuminates the scene slowly over time and gives the user agency. But you're absolutely right. Giving the user too much agency right away is just overwhelming. They, people don't actually know what to focus on. So they still need to be guided a little bit. Okay. So what, what <laughs> metrics have you found are important in VR? You know, this orientation is important. Um, what else do you measure that you found is important or revealing or unusual or you know, useful? Yeah. Um, there's stuff <laughs> that we're not measuring entirely that I think is super important. So stuff like EEGs, uh, you, you know, we were early on, we were trying to, you know, decipher emotion in VR. Um, but Mariam, do you want to take that one? Cause uh, you were the one, you were helping us definitely during the, the whole neuroscience phase of the company. Um, I think yeah, well, your, you know, it would be helpful. <laughs> that, that, that's okay. I'll, I'll defer to you on that. I think you did okay. a good job. With that. All right. All right. Um, so there's, there's a whole, other gamut of of data points that are super important to to virtual reality as well. So you can imagine VR as the extension of the real world. I mean, what what do you care about in a virtual world is probably all the same metrics that you would care a lot about in the real world. So understanding how uh, so something like galvanic skin response. So you know how are people sweating and are people's heart rates going up? Are they you know are they feeling an adrenaline rush? And how do you measure that? Are people smiling? Are they laughing? Are they, you know, are, if they're scared, are they, you know, jerking their head back? Like what, basically what is, is happening and all the classical scientific methods of, of data consumption on, on like physio- physiological responses are all things that you, 
can measure hypothetically in VR. You just can't measure them at scale. And what I mean by that is there's no, there's no input method today um, in a VR headset, let's say, for eye tracking, or there's no that, and that is offered at scale. It exists, but at a very small scale. There's companies that are working on things like EEG, so electronic elastinograph um, responses, which is, um, you know, um, your brain waves and understanding there's a whole body of science around, you know, how, what, what, how can you measure how, how you, your mind is doing just based off of EEGs. Uh, and there's a whole, you know, debate amongst the scientific community whether that data is good or bad or, or whatever, but uh, it is still a parameter that we're looking into. And there's a company out of um, Michigan, the University of Michigan, it's now a lot much larger company that we had met a couple years ago that was working on uh, a customized VR headset that had these EEG inputs called Neurable. And Ramsey Zalsad, who's the, the CEO over there, you know, introduced a really, really cool headset that measures this. Um, did, sorry, did you have a question? I thought I heard something. Well, uh, you know, um, uh, you you can measure all you can measure all these things. You can measure a million things, but you know, in order to be focused, um, do you have an idea of what you should be measuring and why? You know, what are the most? You know, are there things you want to measure that you can't that you think would be really useful, or are there things that? Um, yeah. You know, again, there's so many things you could measure. How do you know how to focus yourself and what will be helpful? Yeah. So, like in data science, it's a problem of of something called overfitting, which is you try to measure everything, but then it just becomes, again, a big soup of data. Like everything matters, but nothing matters. So again, it's just like, oh man, it, we're going down like a slippery slope of which data point matters the most. And you just kind of have to base off of the assumptions. So like EEG, so to answer your question directly, like Miriam, like I, I, I think we can agree, like what Ramses is working on, if EEGs turn out to be a reliable data source, um, because again, there's a lot of debate. That would be really, really crazy. Because their whole, their entire premise is that you can control something in the real world through a VR headset and just using your mind. So, like a brain-computer interface. That is, that is a phenomenal thing to track and understand. Now, on the privacy side, that gets super dangerous as well. But it is a phenomenal thing to understand and track. I think something a little bit more simple, like whether you're smiling or, or you know, eye tracking, whether your your eyes are dilating or your pupils are dilating. Um, and how you're reacting to in within a VR experience can start to give you the first inklings of emotional response at scale, uh, which again is, is super exciting to measure and track. So I think those two, like EG, maybe less less so, but uh, definitely like eye tracking. And I think you know companies like Facebook, scarily enough, are are starting to are working on that. Uh, the HTC Vive also has an input for that. So um, those are some data points. I don't know, Miriam, what do you think? Those? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's really interesting because so there, there's kind of two things here. There's, you know, what what can be done now at scale. So, like, you know, what what Retinad can do because obviously, uh, you know, Retinad is a software company, not a hardware company. So they are limited to essentially, you know, what, what are the masses using because um, they're not selling any additional, you know, uh, hardware piece to be able to get these extra inputs of data. Um, you know, they they speak into uh, they've spoken to different partners about, um, you know, sort of like eye tracking companies or you know, like EEGs and the like. But again, when, you know, there's only a small handful of people using these extra pieces of hardware, that data is not necessarily meaningful yet. Um, but, but the other concept, I think, I think kind of, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, the way you had asked the question was kind of um, asking about what's more, like, wh which one's more meaningful or, you know, which, um, which 
input essentially is is, is the most meaningful. Um, in that regard, right. it, it's interesting because it kind of also depends on purpose. You know, whether you're a brand or whether you are, um, you know, trying to help for training purposes, like you know, training employees, or you know, sometimes we are used even for um, for training athletes. So so it kind of depends, like what is your what is your purpose um i mean if you're a brand well <laughs> the more data the better probably for you because you know you kind of want to know all of the ways your your users are interacting with um with your branded objects in these virtual environments but you know what is that used today at scale well well that tends to be kind of where users are looking so what um maybe alex you can kind of speak to is, is what's kind of the difference between eye tracking and kind of gaze which is kind of what um, Retinad looks to because of the fact that it's the type of hardware being used is, is limited um, and being able to track all of these uh, data points. Um, Richard, what do you think? Well, what I, what I see is this, and I'm an outsider, so you know, I don't know. I, I bet you can track 100 different things, and that's great, but you have to focus somewhere. And what will be the usefulness of tracking this or that or the other, you know, Without going crazy and being ineffective, I would I would have to say, all right, well, we can track these hundred things, but out of all of them, only these seven we think are going to be the most exciting or useful. So we'll start with those. That's yeah. why I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, yeah, I think, Mary, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, eye tracking is definitely the most the the, the thing that will be available, you know, uh, rapidly or more available very soon, just because eye tracking itself just helps with the um, like focus in VR, um, meaning like you're able to, I guess I'm looking for the actual word, I'm, I'm escaping me right now, but like the field of view, the the area available to you as, as a user, you can just process more or less in real time. So like your eyes can only see a very limited field of view. So it doesn't make sense to render an entire virtual world. It just makes more sense to like, what are you actually looking at um, inside of VR experience. So from a technical perspective, that's super important. From like a brand or agency perspective or like, you know, marketing perspective, that's also extremely important. And marketing dollars are also what what are going to funnel this industry for, for quite some time, I believe, and help it get started. Um, and the reason why that's super important is, again, on advertisers are just clamoring to understand things like brand recall, brand memorability, you know, uh, um, you know, kind of all the, the, those, those recall metrics. And the way that you could start to, you know, estimate this at scale is if, like, Richard, you looked at, like, the, the Coke logo for eight seconds, you know, Miriam looked at it for nine, and I looked at it for four. If you start to introduce things like programmatic advertising, you start to learn user behavior to such a, a precise detail over time that, like, advertising becomes much more targeted, much more uh, relevant. So I can start bidding for based on not like a click metric or, you know, how long did you browse maybe metric on this web page? I can know like on literally where you looked metric, like a, a gaze ratio. Um, and that for advertisers to understand, okay, well, Richard's a more valuable customer because every single video we shoot his way, he's, he's engaging with that logo versus Alex who might be looking at something different. So targeted advertising becomes uh, extremely relevant um, and you know, depending how you look on it, very, very lucrative, very dangerous um, of the same side of the coin or different sides of the same coin. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely eye tracking is, is something you would, you would care about. Yeah, and I can see what you mean. It would be a lot more efficient if I only had to render the VR, um, you know, a half second before you looked at it. I only had to, you know, if you had a field of view of uh, 30 degrees, 
I only have to right. render that part of it, not the whole 360 that made exactly. it, the headset run a lot better. Exactly. Exactly. Foveated. It was called foveated rendering. It was escaping me. But yeah, from the fovea of the eye, it's where, where you're looking around as opposed to, okay. like you said, uh, everywhere. Yeah. So what, what are you finding that um, companies are most interested in? You know, again, you can measure all these things. Um, what are they coming to you and saying, we want to measure this, that, or the other? And you know, yeah. does that surprise it's, you? I mean, it totally depends on, on the client. I mean, Miriam helped us with this because at first, I mean, we're just VR nerds, right? So we're we're just like, well, people are going to need this. But, and that's generally just a, like a problem of, of geeks in any industry is to build something for themselves. And then, you know, hopefully there's other, there's more of, a, of themselves that's a market. So Miriam really helped us go through and segment every single customer base from video, like indie game developers to big game studios that would care about like, where is the player looking around when they get stuck in one of the, you know, virtual reality scenes? Are they, you know, are they getting stuck here or there? Like, and well, you know, are they getting stuck when they're looking at the lever or where they're, they're looking at I don't know, some sort of monster or something? Who knows? Um, if you're an enterprise customer and you're using it for training purposes, you care about uh, similar stuff, I guess, to video games, which is where are people like if you're let's say you've got like a, a train conduction simulation or some sort of construction simulation in VR, which which a lot of companies are starting to jump into right now. It becomes a question of, you know, how fast are, are my operators actually completing this training simulation and where are they getting stuck? And how do they, I then translate that into the real world? And can I measure, can I benchmark what they're doing in the real world and then bring that back into VR and basically help fine tune these people and make them into like super, super workers uh, through VR. Um, that's the second component. And uh, Marion was phenomenal in helping us with that. And then, um, I mean, for advertisers, we just spoke, I think a, a lot to that, but for advertisers, it's, how long are people engaging with my brand, with my, my, with my branded assets, with my content, and where specifically are they looking in that content? Can I target them better? If you're a videographer, a cinematographer, it was all the stuff that we did. You know, we pioneered with, with studios like Felix and Paul and Jessica Brailhart. Where, you know, uh, how are people navigating through a VR scene? What, what um, key elements are they looking at? Key narrative elements uh, and audio elements are they looking at? And how are they moving around? And, and um, when are people stopping out as well? Oh yeah, definitely. It's not only what they're doing, but like, what are they doing just before they stop or they fail at, at completing experience? Um, I don't know, Mary, am I missing anything? No, no, I think, I think that's, that's pretty good. Actually, those just kind of like, I think those four kind of big, bigger use cases that tend to be the, the main ones. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Let's, um, let's talk briefly about Lumiere. You said that uh, they had acquired Retina VR. So what's the, yeah. what is Lumiere about? And uh, you know now you're part of a bigger company or a different company. So how's that yeah. going to interface with what you're doing? Yeah, totally. I'm Miriam. This, I think this is this is one for you because you really helped us get over like identify Lumiere as you know a first customer and then potential acquisition target as well. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so like Alex actually just mentioned, so uh, Lumiere was. Uh, a customer first for Retina. They were looking for analytics internally. Um, you know, at the time they were focused mostly on content creation. Um, but more recently, what they're doing is they're actually working on distribution as well. So they not only create content, but they set up VR theaters, um, working with aquariums and museums. Um, and now more recently, they have a larger client. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, we can speak to it. Um, Alex, are we allowed to speak um, to that one? 
Yeah, I will leave it off the table for right now until they can. Okay, sure. But but in in, in the in the you know week or two, we'll, they'll be able to announce kind of a, a larger venue that they're working with as well, where essentially they're setting up these uh, virtual reality theaters. Um, and basically, they what, what they've built is a syncing software. So, kind of one problem right now is if you're trying to show um, content to you know let's say two people or 10 people or 50 people. Um, one kind of pain point is being able to synchronize that and have everyone go through the experience at the same time, especially if you're using kind of the, the Oculus Go headsets, which tend to be very popular because they don't need, um, you know, they don't need a mobile phone. They, they're, they're wireless and they're at a great price point, you know, around two, 250 to $300. Um, the problem is also, you know, if you're not using speakers, everyone can hear what's happening at the same time. So, so tons of pain points around that. And what they've built is a really great synchronization software where essentially, um, you know, a third person operator who has no technical background, doesn't have to know how to work any of the headsets, really can just use a tablet and then just, um, you know, start and, and start the experiences, pause the experiences and kind of manage the entire theater to the tablet without needing to even, you know, uh, worry about the controller or how to um, work the headsets. So essentially, this um, distribution kind of location-based entertainment that they're providing uh, is, is really uh, a hot industry, especially for 360 content, as a lot of creators are having problems monetizing. Um, they kind of provide that this kind of end-to-end -end solution um, where they're able to help all of these creators creating content, get them get their content in the hands of, um, you know, again, museums, aquariums, and users who actually pay to watch that content. So now um, they've acquired uh, Retinad to not only, um, you know, so Retinad before was more external facing, um, but really now it's kind of more of an internal tool because what it will do is it will help them and their clients as well kind of understand how people are engaging with the content going through the theaters. Um, and so non, so Alice kind of mentioned at the very end um, how one of the use cases was cinematic companies or, you know, uh, creators doing kind of VR and film. Um, so they're going to be using that tool internally to kind of understand their own content in terms of how people interact with different kinds of content. So if you think of kind of like, you know, the, the Netflix of VR, the same way Netflix kind of does their own content and tests it out and, you know, tries to see how people interact with it. Um, analytics is very novel there because it'll allow you to do the same thing for virtual reality content to be able to build better content and find out what is it that users really want since it's so nascent that people don't really know yet what makes a really fantastic VR film. Um, and then also using it for the distribution part. Yeah, it sounds like uh, I would be overwhelmed if I were you guys. There's so many possibilities that uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully you're not. But <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it, it literally oh. is. It's, it's, it's a, a, the Wild West, it seems like, which is great. It's exciting. Yeah, it's been described like that uh, very, very often. So you're right on the mark. Absolutely. <laughs> there was um there was a movie came out uh you know a few months ago, Ready Player One. And I know that movies are not real, but um <laughs> it painted a very exciting picture of what may you know, some elements of VR, what may be possible in the future. What's you know, as insiders, what's your guys' comments on it? What did you like about it? What did you think was ridiculous? <laughs> oh, I love you know, that. What did you think was inspiring? Yeah. Um, that's funny. Actually, so I, I read that book before watching the movie, um, and I loved the book. I feel like the movie uh, didn't do the book justice, but I did actually really enjoy the movie. So I think a lot of people um, were, were kind of cynical to say and saying, like, you know, I don't know, the movie maybe was um, 
too fantasy-like, um, but I, I actually think that it did paint a picture in terms of, you know, what can be done in virtual reality. And it's funny because a lot of the things actually can already be done. Again, not at scale, but there are tons of companies already um, that can do, you know, like the like walking in walking in VR, so like moving in VR using like a kind of like a treadmill type of um, a, a piece mm. of equipment. You know, there's already haptic gloves out there, um, haptic suits. <laughs> you know, there's um, there's all sorts of like 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 on a small scale companies that are able to do a lot of the things that they were showing. Um, even these like virtual worlds already exist. You know, with companies like Sansar, uh, VR Chat, um, all of these social VR uh, spaces where you can essentially be kind of like an avatar, um, a virtual avatar, and be and create you know your own rooms. Um, so a lot of that, it's funny because in my mind, it all, it, it's already there and it exists. It's just not, you know, scaled to the masses yet. Um, so it, it didn't seem that far-fetched to me, uh, which, you know, going to your other point, it's kind of scary that it's not that far-fetched because, um, you know, the, I guess the, the movie kind of had a moral to say that it's not good to really be, you know, only in that virtual world and to allow that right. virtual world to be possessed by any one company. So I think if there's a key takeaway there, it's kind of to kind of the peril of what VR um, could be like in the future. And so what that speaks to is needing it to be as open source as possible. So it is really scary that a lot of what, I mean, again, it's, it's normal because right now a lot of what's happening is going to be, you know, it's going to be private, it's going to be large corps or, or small startups. So, um, but it's, it is important from early on for, I think, kind of third party uh, kind of agencies or bodies to be set up with that kind of either regulate or help um, create open source guidelines around who kind of owns content, who owns these virtual worlds, you know, um, and all of the data coming along with it. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about the movie is there were people in the movie that, you know, their whole lives were in VR. That, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem that. For some reason, VR doesn't appeal to me. Like maybe I'm different. I don't know. I, I like it. It's cool, but it's not something I'd want to do constantly. And I don't know if that's because the technology is not advanced enough, or it's just yeah, human nature Wait. is like that. What have What have you guys seen? Have you seen that the possibility for addiction and complete immersion is very high, or is it less than you expected? I mean, you're you're speaking to early adopters who, who like spend several hours a day in VR. So I mean, the addiction in VR is, is definitely a real possibility. Um, I think addiction also in this case, like over usage of anything, of course, is bad. Um, but so I guess two things. The first is, yes, the technology is not necessarily there. And that's why the industry itself has not moved the needle forward that too, too much in the last couple of years in terms of mass adoption. You know, Zuckerberg came out six months ago saying, hey, uh, our goal at Facebook and Oculus is to have a billion people in in, in VR by in the next five years or something crazy like that for 10 years. I, I forget what it was. It was a pretty cre- pretty ambitious goal, all things considered. And then he, he jokingly and awkwardly, you know, walked onto stage and said, hey, this last Oculus Connect, which was just last uh, last week, which is a annual industry uh, Ocul- Oculus um, conference. He said, how are we doing? And then he had this graph of a billion and then, you know, a percentage marker and then it just hit 1%. So he was kind of laughing at himself and saying, oh, yeah, pretty ambitious and um what they're what facebook is committed to doing is create like a a lot of the problems with vr is one content's not necessarily very good like you know the like we haven't figured out that grammar and two 
the screen, what we call the screen door effect, or you know, not looking like a very crystal clear image when you put on VR, it being nauseating has been a big problem. They're tackling that as well. You know, three, price point. To get a real VR experience is super expensive. It's not accessible to people. Uh, wires, you know, it's all tethered. It's just like it's heavy, bulky gear. It's weird. It's just not easy for a consumer to pop into. Like a smartphone is just everything in the palm of your hand. And then all of a sudden we're asking the user to go through all these hoops and ladders to get through, you know, to just take three minutes to watch, you know, mediocre content. It's just that's why the industry hasn't taken off. And part of it is exactly that, Richard, like, you know, the headsets just haven't been there. So now just recently announced is the Oculus Quest, which is every all the promise of VR as it was supposed to be a few years ago, but without all the headaches of like a dedicated smartphone, wires, you know, $2,000, you don't need all that stuff. It's, I think it's $300 head, or $400 headset now that was going to come into market in spring 2019 of next year. And that will help hopefully curve a lot of the main issues with VR today and make it extremely accessible and very fun for users. So to give you an idea, I was playing like tennis. Like it sounds like Wii U or the Wii tennis that we were playing in 2008, but now you're embodied in your living room and you can play with, you know, people for your friends halfway across the world. And it might not sound incredible or fun, but it's really amazing to connect with people in that way and play games or just say hi. And, you know, the awkwardness of FaceTime of like, oh, I'm holding my phone and kind of looking at you and am I supposed to have a conversation or like, what is this body language? It feels awkward. All of that just kind of comes together and, and it's, all the pain of that is, is taken away when it just feels like you and I can be in the same room sharing an experience at the same time. Um, so all of those weird, like physical and financial issues that were, you know, hindering VR, I, I, I think will be gone. Um, and I'm forgetting what the other part of my discussion point was, but I think, I think I captured most of it, but so short answers. Yes. Yeah, it, uh, I, I think it will get better. I'm confident. Um, oh, and VR. Yeah, and hopefully it won't be a world yeah. where everyone's just in VR constantly and not in the real world. I, I remember, um, <laughs> you know, 30 years ago with video games, they would call people that played them all the time. idiots, like an idiot, you know, and there were <laughs> stories of people like, you know, their whole life was in video games and they, it was, you know, I wonder if the same parallel will happen or not. Well, Look at it this way. Uh, smart, like we're all walking around like zombies right now outside with our, uh, you know, with our text neck, uh, like physiological results of us, you know, looking down. I think I have it, just us looking downwards all the time on our phone and not actually experiencing the world as it. Now, I'm not saying VR is going to fix this or solve this or is the next great thing to, you know, make this better. And I, you know, tech, tech definitely has its limits. And I think reality is always going to beat VR. But, you know, there is a game out there. Um, called Beat Saber that just has is having such a phenomenal impact on people, uh, getting them to move around. And people are, you know, losing 30, 40, 50, 100 pounds playing this game. And people are, you know, yeah, we're not connected despite social media. I mean, this is a whole different discussion, so I won't get into it. But I, it's really difficult to connect with people and, and to have this ability to actually connect, even if it's with an avatar and express yourself in a way that you may not feel comfortable expressing in the real world. And to have this outlet, I think it's so important that sure, there's always with any technology or anything you do, there's always this fear of idiots or VR idiots that we might call them or just, you know, people are lounging around uh, in VR and for sure that will happen. Um, but I think the good the good and the positives that will result of, from VR uh, is going to benefit humanity way more than, you know, the fears that come along with it. That makes sense. Yeah. 
to give you my rosy to give you my rosy thoughts. <laughs> well, it's better than uh, the thoughts of you know Terminator S futures or <laughs> where everyone just uh, is laying in stasis and just in VR all the time. So yeah, I rather yeah that. yeah. <laughs> fair, very well, fair, so what, fair what's ahead in the next six months or a year for both uh, Retinet and uh, Lumiere? Uh, well, as our, I mean, Miriam, you're a strategic consultant. Can you, <laughs> want to, you want to share your vision? Because I've got my ideas, but you always help me refine them. Uh, no, no, I'm going to let you, you you take that. Oh, really? <laughs> wow, a hard game. Hardball today. Okay. Um, I, I, um, I share the vision of how do you make VR a little bit more ubiquitous? How do you get it to as many people as possible and like what is a good use case and i, I really be, believe in lumiere's vision of um virtual reality should be um despite it being argued as a uh, very isolating experience i think it should be social and i think it should be an extension of an existing experience so i really believe in the model of like a museum or a work a co-working space or any office space right now um and allows you to jump into a VR experience as a complementary to something that you would experience in the real world. So the use case of, let's say, I'm walking through the Louvre in France, and I want to experience what it used to look like or what this artistic piece, uh, how it was created. And I want to get to know the author or the, the creator of this piece and experience what, you know, maybe even France was like two, 300 years ago, what Paris felt like. Um, being able to step into that world and experience that the history or even the future, something that you wouldn't be able to experience on the day-to-day basis, I think is a phenomenal use case for VR today. And that's something that VR, uh, Lumiere VR is, is developing right now by establishing these, what we call the micro theaters that Miriam was, was explaining before uh, in these spaces. Um, so I think that that on the horizon is, is super exciting stuff that we're working on. And then volumetric video capture and photogrammetry. So while there's a lot of limitations in the way that we capture video today for, for virtual reality, understanding the way that it's growing up as a, as a medium and understanding that VR video is something that, when successful, I think, um, falls something between a, uh, a linear story and, and a video game. So essentially, um, not quite a video game where you have every option possible available to you and you can kind of run around and there's challenges. Um, but not quite linear content where you're just a passive user watching a story with a director and a narrator um, and a protagonist, you know, immersing yourself either as a third third party character inside of a, of a story is, is super important um, and, and really, really interesting to, to this new kind of medium that's being born uh, or putting you as a first person, you know, protagonist potentially inside of a film. Uh, and, and giving you kind of the agency that a video game would give you, but not quite as much and allowing you to, the, the video game to, or the, the film to behave in the same way that a video game would. So maybe you can interact with the character. You can interact with, let's say, like different elements in a scene. Like if you open up a door, maybe there's a different story that's told. Or if you, you know, maybe you're a character and you actually brush up against like a, a glass inside of a virtual world and it, it drops and it, you know, that catches the intention of these AI characters inside of the virtual world or these, right. these computer characters like that, that the possibilities uh, and the, my imagination or the, your imagination as a content creator can kind of go everywhere. So something Lumiere is working on on the content creation side with volumetric capture with companies like ADI or, or Metastage in, in Los Angeles or something or some really, really cool things we've pioneered. Well, very cool. So what's the best way for listeners to get in touch and find out more about Retinad and about Lumiere? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, we're always open to, to we're always happy to chat. Uh, we're based in, in San Francisco Bay Area and in Toronto, Canada, and have a, an outlet as well in China. So if you're ever in one of those uh, large ecosystems, uh, you can probably catch us there. Easiest way is also through just like digital channels like social media. So, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, come say hi with Lumiere VR, Retinad VR. Um, and yeah, I mean, find us in the metaverse. Also, like the the Facebook VR channels and uh, you know Oculus venues, we're we're always participating on those. So come say hi. That's great. Well, Alex and Miriam, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, very interesting. I really appreciate your thoughts and insights. Thank you so yeah. much for having. Thank you for having us. Appreciate your time. You have been listening to Almost Here Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.